This is a reminder that episode 200 is coming up, and that is a question and answer show. So go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, fill out the contact form, or go to Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and ask me questions. I will answer them on episode 200. Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Before we begin today, a little bit of context. Theoretically, the United States Congress has a great deal of say over foreign policy. For example, the Senate has to ratify all treaties that the United States is a party to, and it is Congress's job to declare war. That hasn't always worked out well, though. Throughout American history, war-making and foreign policy power has gradually shifted over to the executive. This is not a new thing. Arguably, it started with Thomas Jefferson fighting an undeclared war against a bunch of pirates in the Mediterranean, but that's a story for a different time. The point is, foreign policy, and war stuff in particular, isn't this bottom-up thing that's debated by the legislature. It is a little bit, but for the most part, it's a top-down thing imposed by the executive. Probably the biggest example of the American executive doing lots of foreign policy and fighting an undeclared war was Vietnam, and in the early 1970s, the Article I branch of government, the legislature, pushed back. In 1973, Congress passed the War Powers Resolution, better known as the War Powers Act. It had really broad bipartisan support, enough support to overcome a veto by then-President Richard Nixon. It was an attempt by the legislature to check the power of the executive in matters of armed conflict. It required the president to notify Congress within 48 hours of any commitment of U.S. forces, and it forbade forces from being deployed for over 60 days without congressional consent and broadly increased congressional oversight of how the United States engages in war. There's a certain irony here, given that the U.S.'s war-making powers rest with Congress anyway, but since the passage of the War Powers Resolution, it has been variously used, bent, and ignored by American presidents. If we were to go down that rabbit hole, this would be a very long podcast. But a big side effect of it was that it incentivized presidents to do more in the way of covert action to pursue foreign policy goals. It signaled to presidents that instead of working with Congress, where they'd have limited power, they should do more secret shady things where they can do whatever they want. Ronald Reagan had a strong impulse for interventionism. We talked about that in the last episode in this series with the Reagan Doctrine. His administration, however, didn't just come into conflict with the Democratic Congress that was trying to limit his power, with things like the Bullitt Amendments, there was also a great deal of infighting even in the executive branch. Without getting too much into the weeds, basically, 
Reagan's State Department was less gung-ho about adventurous interventionism than the National Security Council or the National Security Advisors were. So, of course, we have a presidency that already wants to make decisions independent of Congress. We also have a president and other interventionists who want to make decisions away from the State Department. Reagan and his fellow interventionists often made decisions behind closed doors, keeping out even other members of the administration. Reagan had a tendency to make policy and make plans more with the NSA and NSC than he did with the people who disagreed with him, like the State Department or the Congressional Foreign Relations Committees. That is, he worked with people in government who would say yes. Even before Iran-Contra was a going concern, the Reagan White House made foreign policy from the very, very inside. We're not talking about foreign policy that is coming from congressional debate or even cabinet meetings. This is foreign policy coming from a small, insular group of people inside the White House, which includes the president. So... Going into the juicy part of Iran-Contra, keep in mind that the presidency as an institution, and the Reagan White House in particular, have built-in incentives to be more insular than most people in American political life probably would have liked. This problem of secret plans and secret wars did not come out of nowhere. There were structures in place to make it so. Now, we don't quite know who the mastermind of Iran-Contra was. It was probably William Casey, the then head of the CIA, though he was never really called to task for his role in the scandal as he died in 1987. Even though we don't quite know who to credit or blame with the creation of the scandal, it's clear that the inner circle of the Reagan administration was very much on board with continued funding for the Contras and the ongoing efforts of the Sandinistas, no matter what the rest of the U.S. government had to say about it. Efforts to fund the Contras became known as the Enterprise, and two of the major players in charge of that Enterprise were National Security Advisor Robert Bud McFarlane and a Marine Lieutenant Colonel named Oliver North. McFarlane and North were the money guys, North especially. In the Iran-Contra affair, he was part lobbyist, part fundraiser, and part mafia accountant. Eventually, he'd become the one person most associated with the scandal. But right now, what's important is that he's talking to rich people, making deals, and keeping the money flowing. Getting third parties like Saudi Arabia and other folks who want to fight communism across the globe to open their wallets and fund the Contras in Nicaragua. For instance, Joseph Kors, the Colorado Beer Executive, visited the director of the National Security Council at his office and declared, in person, that he wanted to donate to the Contras and fight encroaching socialism. The NSC director's office referred him to Oliver North. But we have to put Nicaragua and the Contras on hold for just a minute because this is where we get to the Iran part of Iran-Contra. While all of this fundraising is going on, the Reagan administration has another problem, 
American Hostages in the Middle East. In the early 1980s, Lebanon had, and still has, a pretty big problem with militant fundamentalist Islamic terrorist organizations like Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah. These were Shia organizations backed by Iran, and in the early 1980s, the organization that would later become known as Hezbollah had managed to capture a few American hostages. Now, the U.S. has a stated policy of not negotiating with terrorists or pirates or kidnappers of any sort, not even to rescue American citizens. You might recall some years ago that when Somali pirates captured American mariners, the U.S. sent in snipers, not negotiators. Reagan, though, was very preoccupied with freeing American hostages. In fact, the day he became president, Iran freed a bunch of American hostages. It was, it was his thing. And it seems that he genuinely wanted to keep making it his thing and somehow negotiate these hostages' release. But even if the U.S. didn't have a stated policy of not negotiating with terrorists, it's not like the U.S. had any influence or sway or moral authority when it came to diplomacy with Hezbollah. Iran did, though. And Iran was somebody you could negotiate with. They were in bad shape during the 1980s. Iran was a new country, recovering from the revolution. It had been fighting a years-long war with Iraq. And the Islamic theocracy was on the outs with both the United States and the Soviet Union. Being on the outs with both the Eastern and Western blocs meant that it was kind of hard for Iran to buy weapons in the 1980s and keep that war with Iraq going. But if anyone was going to be the ideal, desperate customer for secret American armaments, it was them. And maybe, just maybe, the U.S. could prevent Iran from edging toward the Soviet Union's orbit by providing weapons. After all, they're unaligned. They're fighting a war. They're kind of desperate. Better cozy up to them before the Soviet Union does. And also, maybe, just maybe, closer relations could empower moderate influences in Iran. Really, when you put it into context of fighting potential Soviet influence and maybe empowering moderates, giving a theocracy secret weapons seems like a great idea, right? Right? Anyway, in July of 1985, Reagan told the National Security Council to contact Iran. And if you're familiar with the scandal, you might be wondering about the extent of Reagan's involvement. We'll get to his famous I don't recall remarks next episode. But Malcolm Byrne is a director of research at the National Security Archive at George Washington University and the author of Iran-Contra, Reagan's Scandal and the Unchucked Abuse of Presidential Power. Uh, he's probably my biggest source for this series. He's the foremost authority on Iran-Contra, and his work is based on pretty extensive research into the primary sources. He believes Reagan was involved in the scandal pretty directly, had knowledge of what was going on, and was particularly motivated by the desire to free American hostages. Bud McFarlane and Oliver North began a plan to ship weapons, specifically high-tech anti-tank missiles, to Iran via Israel and an Iranian arms dealer, 
by August 20th of 1985, over 400 American missiles were in Iranian hands. Shortly after that, Hezbollah released an American hostage. Hey, it worked. Cool. Everything seemed good, and Reagan gave the go-ahead for North to oversee another transfer of weapons to Iran in November of that year. The next transfer was a bit more difficult. The Israeli plane the missiles were on was supposed to go through Portugal to Iran, and they had some issues with transfer and landing rights. Specifically, the Portuguese government was familiar with the stated American policy of not selling weapons to Iran. Portuguese officials were confused about who these missiles belonged to, as players in the Enterprise, as it was called, fed them a few contradictory lines about the nature of the weapons sale. So, all these weapons are at the Lisbon airport, and Lisbon airport officials didn't know if they were being asked to move missiles belonging to the U.S. government, an arms dealer, a private citizen, or someone else. They didn't want to run afoul of the United States, which makes sense, and the missiles were only freed up because Oliver North procured a CIA plane to fly out and rescue the weapons. But that's not the end of the problem. When they got to Iran, the buyers declared that of the 80 missiles in the shipment, only 18 were any good. The whole thing nearly blew up because the Lisbon airport staff since some funny stuff was going on, and even after all that effort, the Enterprise didn't get the payday they planned when the buyers said, these explosives are not what we wanted. Hezbollah did not release another hostage. In May of 1986, McFarlane and North actually traveled to Iran to get Hezbollah to release someone else, uh, and they were not successful. At this point, Bud McFarlane got frustrated with the arms for hostages deal and quit. Over the next year, Hezbollah did release two more hostages, and Iran got a few more weapon shipments. But at the same time, another different extremist group in Lebanon, which could have been allied with Hezbollah or a front group for Hezbollah, took three more American hostages, which makes sense. After all, if you look at things from their perspective, taking American hostages seems to be a worthwhile investment as it means a missile payday for their backers in Iran. This is why you don't negotiate with terrorists, because it makes doing that kind of thing look like a rational, lucrative business model. Anyway, later on, Oliver North improved the scheme by making the missiles even more expensive, bypassing countries like Portugal, who could foul up the whole affair by asking what's the deal with these weapon shipments guys and funneling more money to the Contras. So we had a system where Iran, whose stated policy was that the U.S. should not exist, was buying missiles from the United States, whose stated policy was that Iran shouldn't get any weapons, via Israel, another country Iran wanted to destroy, so that terrorists could free American hostages, which only works sometimes, and the United States could make money so it could fund right-wing fighters in Nicaragua. Those right-wing fighters, I'll remind you, were remnants of a dictatorship who dealt with dissidents by throwing them into a literal volcano. This was all being done without the knowledge of the State Department or Congress or really anybody outside of Reagan's inner circle, 
And it was a great plan. It was sure to get freedom all over everything. Everything was going okay for the Reagan administration. They'd gotten around Congress's troublesome attempt to keep them out of Nicaragua. They were supporting the Contras with tons of cash from private donations and weapon sales. They were getting American hostages out of Hezbollah's hands. The Reagan administration was overseeing foreign relations, finding a way to carry out the Reagan doctrine, and making deals without the rest of the U.S. government, even Reagan's own State Department, interfering. The executive branch was determined to have its way regardless of what the rest of the U.S. government had to say about stated policy. And as long as the secret didn't get out, things were working smoothly. Next episode, The Secret Gets Out. This show is not funded by secret weapon sales. It is funded by you, the listener. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a monthly supporter. Thank you to everybody who does that, and keeps this show afloat, I appreciate it immensely. Something also helpful for the show is to go to Apple Podcast or your podcatcher of choice and give the show ratings and reviews. Those help other people discover it. And I am on social media. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. And on Twitter, I am at J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, Facebook, Twitter, etc., and ask me questions for episode 200. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. War is sexy. War is fun. Iron ego. Red dawn. Hey, Wolverine, no rule. He'll just get some guns and Cheerios. And he can conquer Libya. Just be a fighter.